My name is Michael Shaw. And I'm Michelle Welcher. And this is The Climate Crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is continuing to spread across the globe. According to the World Health Organization, coronavirus has now infected over 135,000 people and killed nearly 5,000. Kenya and Ghana have confirmed their first coronavirus cases. India has reported its first coronavirus death. The death toll in Italy has surpassed 1,000, while the country's medical system struggles to treat the sick. Meanwhile, satellite photographs have been published online showing what appear to be mass graves in Iran, where coronavirus victims have been buried. The official death toll in Iran is around 429, but many fear the actual number is far higher. France, Ireland, Austria, Belgium, Turkey, and Norway have all begun taking steps to close schools to stop the spread of the virus. Here in the United States, the number of reported coronavirus infections jumped by nearly 400 Thursday to about 1,650, but the actual number is believed to be higher. Congress's in-house doctor has privately told Capitol Hill staffers that he expects 70 to 150 million people in the United States will contract the virus. Well, and there's plenty more since then. That was Amy Goodwin from democracy now that was from march the 13th and that news now seems old doesn't it every day the news is becoming out of date mm. and for the next week and particularly today's show but the next few weeks we'll be doing more of this is the corona crisis <laughs> and this is the climate crisis yes. although they are both very connected mm. we're taking you to an interview we did with dr christine gibson in calgary canada we have on the line Dr. Christine Gibson to talk about the corona crisis, as well as exploring its place in the bigger picture of the climate crisis. Christine is a family physician and clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary, Canada, with a background in equity work, medical education and global health. Avenue Magazine Calgary voted Christine top 40 under 40 for her global health and philanthropic work. She's currently creating a podcast series for Canadian Family Physician Journal, interviewing family doctors around the world about responding to COVID-19. Hello, Christine. Hi, Christine. Hi. Nice to see you both. Yes. Christine, I first met you at GEMS Retreat in the UK late last year, and I know you as someone who's very passionate about um, community health and wellbeing. So let's begin talking about the coronavirus because it seems like it's the only conversation that can be had at this point in time. What's it like in Canada? Like, I, I know Australia's gone a bit crazy. We're all hoarding toilet paper and food here. Uh, and the general feeling is a little bit panicky. What's it like over there? I would guess it's quite similar. I mean, being a physician, it's it's different kinds of concerns. We're really worried about having low amounts of testing equipment. I think that's probably the biggest challenge worldwide that we're facing collectively is that if we were able to test, you know, entire populations, then we would really have a greater understanding of the epidemiology, but we don't have that ability in, in any country. It doesn't really matter if you're a resource poor setting or not at this point, we just don't have these kinds of capacities. Mm. So personal protective equipment is scarce, testing swabs are scarce, and then just obviously the lab and all of the testing centers are so 
swamped already and we're we're early days so i mean what we're hoping is that if everyone can flatten the curve then it would just be a steady stream that's manageable but as soon as we get a spike any any Um, country they can't handle the amount that comes through yeah yeah and then it gets really really scary so i guess we're all anticipating things to to try to mitigate them as best we can i mean it strikes me just when you're talking about the the lack of testing equipment. I don't know how anybody's getting genuine statistics about the number of cases and the number of deaths when we actually, because we're not testing worldwide, how, how, where are these figures even coming from? So Italy did actually test one small village and they tested absolutely everybody there. And this report's actually come out quite recently. And in that scenario, they were able to say confidently that 75% of people who were testing positive were completely asymptomatic. Asymptomatic carriers are much more prevalent than we had assumed. That means people are wandering around, not necessarily following precautions because they feel just fine and they're infecting people just, you know, touching doorknobs, handrails, that kind of stuff. Saying that 75% of people are asymptomatic, so obviously it affects people in different ways. Can you tell us a bit about the virus in general and how it can present? Sure. I mean, it's, I'm really lucky because we had a fantastic teleconference with the medical officer of health here last night. So I can plagiarize blatantly what <laughs> I learned through um, the infectious disease specialist and the MOH here locally. Coronavirus is the common cold. So this particular virus often produces cold and flu symptoms every year. And then every once in a while, a specific coronavirus that has certain capabilities has created these pandemics. So the SARS and the MERS viruses within the last couple of decades were also this particular form of coronavirus that tends to mutate in animal populations, generally in bats. And then there's a susceptible intermediate host. So in this case, they think it's that poor pangolin in China. A a what? Um, Penguin? Pangolin. It was uh, an animal that looks a little bit like an anteater and it has these scales. It's the most interesting looking thing, but in traditional Chinese medicine, there is some form of it that they believe it has aphrodisiac potential. Of course. So this is an it's animal always about that. that in, in markets for for yeah. this traditional medicine. Right. Wow. So so if 75% of people are testing asymptomatic. Then, so 25% of people then have symptoms of some kind, yeah? How dangerous actually is it? I mean, I I hear varying reports about this, but so 75% have no symptoms. Of the 25% that do have symptoms, how dangerous is it for the people that show symptoms? I think even within this symptomatic crew, only 80% 80 of them have really, really mild symptoms. And it just seems like a regular cold. So of the 20% who have severe symptoms. That's the 20% of the 25%, right? Yeah. So of the 25% that have symptoms, 80% of those are mild cases. So they would just have a cold flu type symptoms, fever being the most predominantly prevalent symptoms. So we're seeing 90 to 95% of people are having a striking fever. Cough is not 100% of people, but it's certainly quite prominent. So, you know, the majority of people have a cough. 
because it's not a bacterial pneumonia, a productive cough isn't necessarily what's seen. So a lot of people would expect they'd have, you know, green or brown productive cough. That's not necessarily the case in this kind of pneumonia because it's a viral pneumonia. When we look at it on a CAT scan, it's more like an interstitial pattern. So it doesn't necessarily produce that same murky cough that we would be used to if a person has a very serious pneumonia. We don't see a lot of runny nose. We do see some sore throat. Quite common is muscle aches or joint aches. So when you kind of get that body flu mm. and just feel achy all over, that's quite common as well. So 20% of people would have those kinds of symptoms if they've contracted the virus. And then within that subset, it really depends on the population in terms of available treatment as to what the mortality looks to be. We've seen as low as 0.8% if they have the ability to put everybody on a ventilator who needs one, if they have the ability to isolate in um, con contact and droplet precautions sufficiently. But then we've also seen you know, much, much higher mortality rates in cases like Italy where they've just run out of beds that can provide supportive care for those who need it. Mm. They're having to make some really tough choices. Yes, I heard I heard this, like wartime choices about who lives and who dies. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the older people aren't faring well in that equation. Well, because almost everybody who's dying from COVID-19 are over the age of 80, mm -hmm. and they tend to have comorbidities, which means that they have other kinds of illnesses, chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, mm -hmm. heart disease. So if a person has those kinds of risk factors at baseline, they're less likely to survive. And those are the kinds of choices being made. And I guess I get confused. I mean, I don't want to downplay it, but when you, when you talk about those statistics, it just doesn't sound as dangerous as a lockdown of like, you know, 60 million people in uh, Italy are confined to their own homes at the moment. And France, I think, is following the same route. And Spain. And, and yet those statistics that you talk about don't, don't summon up that level of urgency. But maybe I'm missing something here. Mm. The key that you're missing is, I guess there's two things. So Italy didn't observe um, precautions around social distancing adequately. So people who are still... And, and a lot of the small towns that were happening in this region in Italy were lots of older people who were very social, uh, you know, socially busy. So they were constantly in contact with each other. And so it spread really, really quickly in Italy because they weren't adequately preventative. And once that spread was really fast, the curve sped up so fast that they just had thousands of people, an exponential growth of of contagious cases so they just the health system was not ready to accept the number of people who were coming through and all of a sudden hospitals were full icu was full and mm. there was nowhere to care for all of the people who were sick so the thought behind i mean the social distancing now is really preparing you for what's to come two weeks from now. So because the lag time of presentation with the virus is anywhere from two to 
you know, 10 days with the average being about five, we don't really know who's going to show up symptomatic um, after they've had an exposure for a number of days. Mm -hmm. And so the kinds of precautions we take now are going to show up two weeks from now as to whether or not we adequately flattened the curve and that we could manage the numbers of diseases that come in. Okay. So it's, it's about the volume that happens and how quickly it happens and then being able to try and restrict that rather than the number of people at risk of death. Well, so if you think about a case like Italy or mm. even when Wuhan in China was really mm. quite busy, Lots of younger people were dying in that scenario because they didn't actually have adequate facilities to look after the number of cases coming through. Okay. Also, healthcare workers. So when it comes to simple virology, viral load is really quite important as to how sick you get. Okay. So infectious disease doctors, lung doctors, they tend to get sick with this because they're being consulted on cases so often. So certainly um, in the United States, as of yesterday, I knew two emergency room doctors were already in the ICU. Okay, wow. And these are young, healthy people. Do you personally treat people that um, have COVID? Are they coming in your door? So one of the sites where I work, I, I work at a number of community health centers. One of them we have decided to designate ourselves as a testing site because we work with a lot of homeless and otherwise marginalized people. So if you would imagine a person who has a lot of symptoms and they're going back to a shelter environment, there's just so many more considerations there. I also work at the refugee center and we're not, I mean, honestly, most physician's offices at this point are trying to do telemedicine. We're trying to see everybody remotely over the phone because a waiting room would be just uh, yes, yes. a breeding ground for germs. Of course. Of course. Yes, absolutely. Yes, so it course. seems like this whole social isolation and self-isolating is, is the answer for this. Is that right? Yeah, in fact, you guys should be six feet apart. <laughs> <laughs> so even isolating in your own home? Absolutely, yeah. Really? Okay. Well, 
I mean, if you've had any kind of exposure. So the, we're doomed. The, we're we're the, already doomed. <laughs> the, the, the advice is changing daily. Mm. Yeah. So if, if anyone has had recent travel, certainly self-isolation, even within your home, is more important. So if you've been anywhere in the last 14 days, but... Yeah, I mean, just trying to stay away from humans as much as you possibly can. And there, there, there is a question about this, though. That I mean, it's just one of those sort of little niggling things that I get when I started considering, you know, Michelle and I here. If I was to isolate, like let's say I was to get a cold or something, and I think, oh, I don't know what that is. I've got to isolate. I've been, I've been touching everything in this house already. Like I've been breathing the air. I mean how it's pretty hard to isolate within a household. I guess you just have to isolate the household and then everyone's probably going to come down with whatever it is. Well, and they say that that's possible. Up to 70% of populations will be infected from this virus. It's Mm. just a matter of when that happens. If we can spread out the rate of infection over a number of months, then we have a chance of having adequate hospital care for those who get sick. But if everyone gets sick at once, then we're going to swamp the system and way more people will die. I mean, I've heard numbers as much as 150 million worldwide predicted. Wow. To die? To die. Oh, my God. And that's because the system's swamped. We don't have adequate resources to deal with the crisis. Exponential curves happening. So, Michael, to answer your question, there's there's two different considerations around households. So, one, this is not an aerosolized virus. So, breathing the air. It's not an aerosol. It's not. I thought it was. It's not aerosolized. It's contact and droplet, which means that, you know, the saliva that you spit when you're talking. Or when you touch your mouth or you touch your, you know, parts of your body with fluid, eyes would be important, blowing your nose, anything you do with that. And then if you don't wash your hands right away, then you've contaminated a surface that you would touch next. Likewise, the way to catch it is to contact a surface or to touch somebody and those fluids are exchanged. So if somebody were to blow their nose touch a doorknob and then you would touch the doorknob or if you were to eat something have your fingers near your mouth and then you touch a countertop then so okay. ultimately okay. the things you can do in your own home yeah. would be to wash your hands often every time that you think you've touched anything on your face and you know brushing your hair across your face as I just did <laughs> um, it, it's really hard not to I mean and avoid touching your face as much as you can okay. because that's where most people would have that fluid exchange happen. So it's a contact and droplet virus. And that's one of the pieces of misinformation that's been yeah. floating around. That it's aerosoled. Yeah, it's aerosolized. not aerosolized. Yes, 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 so, yes. That's and such- can live on surfaces. I mean, I've, I've seen anywhere from two days to nine days. So I'm not really sure what the truth is there. I'm not sure if that's known. So it certainly can live on surfaces, but adequate sanitization of surfaces. So like cleaning doorknobs and uh, phones that are shared or like when you go out and somebody hands you the pin pad to do your visa transaction. I mean, that to me is going to be really a huge source. Bill folds if you're out and everyone just using the same one. These are the kinds of things that people aren't thinking about. And also that they're not necessarily adequately sanitizing the surfaces. So the World Health Organization is saying that 70% or greater alcohol content for hand sanitizer, and some just don't have that. Hydrogen peroxide is actually pretty easy to use, and so that's not flying off the shelves just yet. (laughs) 
That's interesting. <laughs> oh, we better delay this for a day and go and get some. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really helpful that's information helpful, because yeah. there's so much fear and confusion. We're not sure what we're running from at times. Is there anything else? I've read things like that the virus doesn't like heat and drinking hot beverages and trying to drink fluid regular. No? No. So this whole yeah. thing about taking the germ down into your stomach, that's just complete bollocks. It's actually funny. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's not how the body works. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, so we do have an immune system, but it's mm. like deeper. Like it's like in our lymph tissues and that's like our, our natural killer cells and our T cells. And like we have an immune system that will fight off viruses, but it has nothing to do with our stomach acid or liver or toxins that we're ingesting. Okay. Heat does kill the virus. What we are seeing is that for temperate zones of the planet, you can actually map a bit of a heat distribution where places that have less heat are having more virulent contagion zones, like, like more people are getting sick in northern climates. Okay. So we are hopeful that summer will slow the virus down everywhere. Yes. I was wondering about the life cycle of the virus because when it first started coming out, they were saying it might take a year or two to create a vaccine and it felt like it was just going to go on and on. And then in China, they're going, I read recently, they're going back to work and it seems like it's slowed. Does the virus have its own life cycle? What, what can we expect in terms of longevity or can you even answer that? I'm not sure. We can't yet because we have to see how the curves flatten in Europe and you know, other places. So Europe, obviously the curves are out of control and those countries that are already being hard, hard hit, mm. it's going to get worse. And there's almost no choice. It's kind of like the climate catastrophe. There's yes. certain things that are just locked into the system. Yeah. So the kinds of cases that we're seeing in terms of severity in a country like Italy or Spain, it's just the tip of the iceberg because we already know that there's asymptomatic carriers who are giving even more people the bug, and that's already happened. That's locked in before they instilled the adequate prevention maneuvers. Mm. So we're going to see exponential growth in some of those countries, and what we're just hoping to do elsewhere is flatten the curve as much as we can and stall people getting the virus so that those who get sick can reach the medical care they need. Mm. In that scenario, I would guess that we would hopefully flatten the curve over the next two to three months, last until summer, maybe not as many people start to get it. There could be a second wave. So when the fall comes and temperatures change again, there could be a second wave of COVID. Mm. There is also the possibility that the virus could mutate. It's an RNA virus and those are known to do this. Mm. So it could mutate and start off another wave again. We just and, don't know. And so if it did start another wave, it, it, I mean, I guess another question here is if you've had it already, does that build immunity to the second time or is this a whole another phase of self-isolation we go into if another wave starts? I think it depends on how much mutation happens. So there have been isolated cases of a person being reinfected and it was documented that they tested positive more than once. But I don't think that that's very prominent right now. There is speculation that the virus did mutate by the time it reached Europe just because of how much more virulent it seems. But we don't know that. It could just be because of the epidemiology in terms of not really taking enough safety measures there. I think as things stand right now, it's 
unlikely that it would mutate to the point that it would be wave after wave of never ending wave. That's generally not how these kinds of things go. If you look at in the past where the world has faced this kind of pandemic, that's not generally what happens, but I think we do have to prepare. You guys mentioned vaccine and we're actually entering human trials of two vaccine here in Canada. So um, we have a, a massive virology lab in Saskatchewan and there's another one in Quebec that have already gone through their animal testing. So we are not far from a vaccine. Like I, I would anticipate it's going to happen in the upcoming months. Okay. Because I imagine, I mean, there's the fear of contracting the virus, particularly if you're a vulnerable person and, and you get hit hard and the deaths that that could cause. But there's also the impact it's having on just social functioning and economic functioning, like schools being shut down and people not being able to go to work, events being cancelled all over the place. It's quite incredible to see society change so quickly and so dramatically. I haven't grown up in a time when things have ever come to a standstill like this. And it's hard to believe that it's real. And if that was to continue, it could really disrupt our whole functioning. I think it already has. Mm. I mean, you just even look at businesses that will suffer, especially small businesses, airline industry, gas production. I think it really has disrupted the economy substantially. So, I mean, Michael and I met in the context of um, systems collapse, and I think this could be a domino and it's just a matter of seeing how many other dominoes fall compared to just weeble wobble for a while. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but my suspicion is that it could kickstart an economic recession. Post Carbon Institute actually just sent out a video today, like anticipating what the economic impact could be. And I've seen, I've actually been working on a a small research project with Thomas Puyo. He's one of people who put out uh, a message on Medium very, very quickly, letting people know the Im- impact of social distancing. Been downloaded creating- 24 million times, that paper I saw. Yeah, over 35 million. million. Jeez. Yeah. So I was working with him until two in the morning, <laughs> trying to drum up some research of, of what actually happens in a resource-limited environment. So one of my places of clinical work is in the global health realm. And so the entire country of Uganda has three ICU beds. So I'm in close contact with my friend who's the program director for family medicine, and they haven't had a case that's detected yet. But I mean, their capacity to manage even what we're seeing in Australia or Canada, it's it's negligible. So if these kinds of environments do get hit, the pandemic will just roll that much faster. Well, I saw you across the river, a flashpoint in the night, a firefly, a moment, a piercing to ignite.
Going back to something you mentioned there, because we, we did meet at Jem Bendel's, which was focusing on the climate crisis. And in some ways, I feel like the attention's been taken away from the climate crisis with COVID. In some ways, it's exactly the same thing. We're dealing with systems breakdown. I, I just wonder what the lessons are for here around, uh, around in, in this for the climate, for, for dealing with the climate crisis in a different kind of way. I don't know if you've had any thoughts about that. I've had very few other kinds of thoughts. Yes, yeah. I think there's a number of uh, take takeaway points. The, the, the first is just this real overt knowing about interconnectedness. We've always had these pretend borders, which are really meaningless in the grand scheme of things. We've had this sense that there were other people and then us mm-hmm. in so many different you know, functions, like it could be a a community of people, it could be a nation, but there is no other. And I think an understanding of interconnectedness is something that could shift the paradigm where people start to believe that we are all in this together and the elites are not going to take off to Mars and escape what's coming for, you know, all of humanity. Mm. And just how fragile systems are. I mean, I think we've always thought because humans have these tremendous capacities to create technology and to be resilient that we could come up with the thing that's going to solve all of these challenges that we've created. But I think we're really starting to see the tender side of humanity. Like we are, we are afraid we are suffering. We as a collective mycelium are just understanding how deep these roots are growing that are, Fragile. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's well put. I mean, I, I, this sense of a global community I don't think has ever felt as strong mm. when we're all under threat from the same thing, mm. which is similar to the climate crisis, but mm. it, 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 at, at the understanding of that's fracturing because of economics, basically the elite don't want to lose their power and so they're denying it, et cetera, et cetera. But this one is undeniable and hitting all levels at, at all at once. Yeah, I, I, I think we spoke briefly in Cumbria about this organisation in Scotland called the International Futures, Futures Forum has this freely available system online called the World Systems Game and the World Systems Mapping. There was just so much intersection around the concept of healing and healing systems and just this understanding that we are all in these interconnected tapestry of systems that are so much more, not necessarily broken, but ill. Yeah. And and that the recognition and that these metaphors can really be applied at, at multiple levels. So IFF kind of uses that domino Uh, metaphor where they would say, you know, if one system uh, does face imminent collapse or chaos or dysregulation, what does that mean? And 
you know, I do a lot of trauma work. And when I look at this dysregulation, I think of it as the person in front of me, are they managing all of the external and internal challenges that they're being faced with? Mm. And then what does that look like to heal that system at the individual level? And I think when we look at these isolated systems like healthcare or the economy or political systems or agricultural systems, we've been able to see that they're ill for a long, long time. But because we've been seeing them as these isolated silos, we haven't really been able to say, well, what would the interconnected disruption look like? Yes. And it's here. And it's very scary. I don't actually think it's scary yet. Not for yeah. us. Yeah. We're coming from a place of social privilege. I yes. think it's yes. really very scary. True, if you are a homeless person, yeah. if you are living paycheck to paycheck and suddenly out of work and becoming homeless. Yeah. And I think we haven't seen that yet. We don't have sufficient social systems in place. Like we don't have universal basic income. I mean, the kinds of things that anyone in social medicine has been screaming for. I mean, money is medicine, housing is medicine, food is medicine. It's not these stupid pills that we are yes, dispensing so out to people. Yeah, and so I think we're about to lose our medicine for a large number of the people. Yeah, that's really powerful. It's very powerful. Um, last year I was inaugurated into Margaret Wheatley's uh, cohort of warriors for the human spirit. And it's kind of taking a Zen Buddhist approach to the collapse of this civilization. And what she said is we need to create regional nodes where you have a local community that looks after each other. So what would a wise and compassionate response to collapse look like? Well, we're being given an opportunity to practice. And so, you know, looking after your elderly neighbor who is afraid to see people and just washing your hands carefully and leaving some toilet paper on their porch and a couple of pre-cooked meals, you know, this is the opportunity. I've seen it here in Canada. There was a university student who was doing home-based classes and said, anyone who needs a visit, a phone call, some grocery pickup, I'm... I'm there for you. So we have the chance to be the models of what's possible right now and to practice what good ancestors would do and what good community does. And if we have any chance of mitigating what's coming, this is the, the preview. Mm, thank you, Christine. That's yeah, so good. That's good. I, I just wanted to talk for one second. I know you've got a podcast series that you're doing, or about to start with a series of doctors around the world talking about um, the COVID virus. How do people find out? How can we find out about that? How can we stay in touch with that? I think it'd be, it's a great resource that you're offering. The intended audience will be mostly physicians, but my suspicion is that it'll be of great interest to people just to find out what does this course, look like in another yes. country because we're so inundated by our own news feeds. So I'll be speaking with physicians from around the world who are partners within a global health division of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. So that's the CFP and the College of Family Physicians has a podcast available on podcast channels. I'm really excited because I think 
again, one of the other lessons we need to learn is to listen to each other more rather than believe we have the answers or we should be reinventing wheels that are, you know, our national wheel. Um, I think it's a beautiful opportunity for us to to learn from each other in this really interconnected way. People can also find me. I've got a website, um, which is just christinegibson.net. And I put out blog posts, which I'll be doing uh, about a lot of the adventures I've had learning about systems research from two weeks ago. I was in Mexico City with Patch Adams learning humanitarian clowning uh-huh. and healing methodology to the Warriors for the Human Spirit program. So there's all kinds of things that I'm trying to learn that we could open up the box of what we consider healing. Thank you so much. Beautiful, so much that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking to us. It's been a delight. Super fun. Uh, Thank you for, for some great questions. Appreciate your time.